I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Sick Boy, a podcast where we talk about what it's like to be sick. This week's guest is Jasmine. She has myasthenia gravis. Let's talk about it. Okay, uh, well, this is going to be really fun because we're sitting down with Jasmine. And um, this this all came to be from an email that Jasmine sent uh, that actually I read on the show at this point now, a number of months ago. And it had to do with a previous episode where we were speaking with a young woman uh, who has a feeding tube. And uh, we were talking about like, we were talking about like taking the sacrament, like the body of Christ and how, how she went about doing that because mm-hmm. she can't eat through her mouth. Uh, she has to eat everything through a feeding tube. And uh, we thought it was like kind of a fun, interesting little conversation. And then uh, like a week after that episode dropped, we get this email from Jasmine that goes into like the, 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 the specifics about receiving the sacrament if one has a feeding tube and, and like how the, um, I guess the, the, the church, the, the ca- yeah, yeah, the church like <laughs> is like, Oh, we've, we've like figured out, we got an idea. Like we, we can, we have a workaround here. And so, uh, Jasmine, you sent this email and I read it and I was like, Oh, that's so great. And so I responded to you to be like, Hey, by the way, like we're going to read your, your, um, email in the show. And you were like, cool. Um, I also, I'd love to come on the show cause I want to talk about something that uh, I live with that you guys have never covered on the show before. And so you, you, you sent in an application. <laughs> this is a PSA. This is a good PSA. This is a good PSA for anyone who's ever sent in an application. <laughs> so so uh, we've got this huge Google sheet, <laughs> and it's got thousands and thousands of names. And so I just type in Jasmine and, uh, uh, to like in the search bar, and there's like 10 Jasmine entries. And the first one that it highlights, because it highlights it in chronological order, the first one, it was number 174 on the list. And I was like... That's early on. Whoa. <laughs> that was a long time ago. And we always ask, like, the person's name, their age, you know, contact info. And it said 34. And I was like, huh. And I clicked it again. It went down, like, to, like, number 577. And it said Jasmine again. And then it said, like, 35. <laughs> And then I clicked it again and went all the way down to like 1,122. And it was Jasmine, 36. And I clicked all the way down to the very last one, which was like sent in, you know, at at the time of recording this, like a couple of weeks ago. And it said 39. And I was like, oh my God, Jasmine's applied to be on the show pretty much every year since she was 34. And now she's almost a 40-year-old woman. And we still haven't had this person on the show. Like, this is so funny. <laughs> the, the, the PSA part of that is like, is like, 
you know, there are lots of applications yes. and we try to read through all of them, but at sometimes it's just difficult to keep on top of them. And so therefore it's better if you apply and also like the one, like the first hundred people to ever apply to be on the show. Like, you know, if we didn't record with all of those people, they've applied years ago now. Years and ago. so it's kind of weird to reach out to somebody and be like, Hey, listen, hey. You applied. Remember when you were at a completely different part of your life and you applied to be on the show? So, anyway, be on the podcast. Jasmine, first of all, I want to say thank you. Thank you for reapplying and reapplying and reapplying. Thank you for sending in that. Brian told me to. I met you at a live show in Ottawa once and I was like, I applied a while ago. And Brian's like, just keep applying. Our list is so huge. Just keep applying. Yeah. Yeah. I do say that. I'm so glad. Yeah. 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 I totally remember that. Um, Well, Jasmine, thank you so much for, for coming on the show today. We're really excited to talk to you, mostly because we're talking about something we've never covered before. And I'm going to get you to, first of all, introduce yourself. And then secondly, I'm going to get you to pronounce it so that I don't mess it up when I inevitably try later in the podcast. So, hi. Um, I live with myasthenia gravis. That's how you say it. Myasthenia gravis. Yeah. You can say MG for short. That's where that works. Yeah, we often shorten, you know, MS. So, MG. Um, Myasthenia gravis, it literally means grave muscle weakness. It's it's not grave anymore, though. The mortality rates are, are pretty good now. Grave muscle weakness. That sounds really dramatic. Is that death by having the weakest muscles ever, essentially? Yeah, I guess so. I guess that's where the name comes from. The mortality rate, like back in 1900, used to be almost 100%. Like, so, you know, just over a century ago, there wasn't really any treatments. And so most people did die from weak muscles. Um, but now treatments are a lot better. By the 1940s, the mortality rate was around 50%. And like now it's between five to 10%. So you're not likely to die wow. from it. I've heard it described as frequently life-threatening, but rarely fatal. Um, so it's not so grave anymore. It's just a lot of mus- muscle weakness. Uh, that, that's a wild statement. Frequently life-threatening, rarely fatal. <laughs> that that is scary. That is really, yeah, it's, it's like, it's, it's ominous. Yeah, it's Ugh. super ominous. I, I wonder, um, so like when you, when you first said grave muscle weakness, my initial thoughts were, whoa, this would be the biggest insult to the 20 year old gym bros that, that Jeremy and I work out with on occasion. Um, but <laughs> yeah. I'm, so I'm guessing, or I'm wondering when I think of muscle weakness though, is it less so like your muscles in your like arms that you're using to pick stuff up and more so like. Like I think of like, oh, if your heart muscle is very weak, then that's probably a big problem. Like, or like your diaphragm. Yeah. Like what muscles cause the, what are the gravest muscles to be weak? Yeah. (laughs) So it does not affect my heart or any of my involuntary muscles, but it affects all of my voluntary muscles. So anything that I can choose to move. So that's my arms, my leg, my torso, my head, my neck, but also like my eyeballs, my mouth, my tongue, my swallowing, my diaphragm, um, kind of anything that you can choose to move is going to be affected. Hmm. Wow. Wow. Interesting. I, 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 I never, I've never really thought of this, but I, I, I think if someone had asked me, about your diaphragm, if that is a muscle that you like have the choice to move, I, I, I would have assumed that that is like, I would assume that that would potentially fall into the realm of like involuntary. But I, but I suppose you do have like, you do, you don't have control over your, over your heart muscle, right? Like you can't like sit here and go, I'm going to like 
I'm gonna like stop it for a second. Like, <laughs> yeah, not, not by thinking yeah. anyway. But yeah. like, you, but, you, but you yeah. can you can do that with your diaphragm. So that does that does make a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, uh, this is so su- super interesting. I, I've I, I've first of all, I've never heard of this of this illness. Is it is it rare? Uh, it affects about one in five thousand people. So it's oh, so not like that's not super su- rare, but yeah, it's, it's not, not super rare. Yeah, it's not common. Yeah, what? How? Uh, I mean, I just said it earlier. You're 39. What? Like, how do you? How do you get? How do you end up getting a diagnosis of this? Is this something you're born with, or does it sort of just come so, on later in life? It's an autoimmune disease. So mm. I was 33 when I was diagnosed, and um, for me, it started with just ocular myasthenia gravis. So it only affected my eyes. I had gone into the hospital in like January of 2015 for a minor surgery um, and went like unrelated. It was having having uterine polyps removed, like completely mm-hmm. different. But after that surgery, I came home and I noticed my vision was a little blurry and it got worse. So after a couple of weeks, I went to my optometrist and she checked and she's like, yeah, it's probably just an inflamed cranial nerve because you're like stressed and tired, like relax. I was going on vacation next week. She's like, relax, go on vacation and it should get better. If it doesn't, when you come back, I'll send you to a neural ophthalmologist. And as she was like taking notes to herself, I heard her say ptosis and vertical diplopia, which means drooping eyelid and... Um, <laughs> vertical like double vision so I went home and I googled all those things and I came up with well if it's not what she said an inflamed cranial nerve it's either Graves disease which I figured it wasn't because that's a overactive thyroid and I have an underactive thyroid or it would be myasthenia gravis which is an autoimmune disease which I figured that is probably what it is because I already have type 1 diabetes and autoimmune diseases run in my family so I went on vacation to Cuba the next week hoping it would like settle down it did not it got like catastrophically worse so the whole time I was in Cuba I in the back of my head I was like I need to get back to Canada and see a doctor and get diagnosed because I'm pretty sure it's my senior gravis what does like when you say it got worse like what like what what was that like like how was that how would how did it present for you so at the beginning my my blurred vision was just like things were out of focus, like maybe doubled by like a millimeter or two, you know, like just blurry. But over time, my vision started to double because I couldn't control my left eye. So my left eyeball was always looking down and to the right. I couldn't move it and my eyelid wouldn't stay open. And so my vision eventually doubled that if I was talking to you and looking at you, you would have a head and then there'd be like a foot of space and then there'd be another head floating above. So everything was doubled. So it was very disorienting and very painful because I couldn't control those muscles in my face. So the whole rest of my face was trying to like compensate and which was just, um, it was exhausting. So I was just in a lot of pain and really tired and I couldn't see. And so it was really hard to like move around and navigate. So that was kind of how it started for me at the beginning. Mm -hmm. And, and like, obviously like if I was looking at you, I could probably see that like, all right, she's having a hard time keeping her eye open and that, that other eye just kind of like floating in space, like looking to, you know, in some other world. But was there like the way your muscles in your face, like have to kind of compensate for that? Was there, was there other sort of visual, um, like evidence on your face that you, that you could like see that was very evident that there was something going on? 
No, just that my eyelid was drooping shut, but I was tilting my head really high up into the left so that both my, because my right eye was always looking down. So like my left eye was always looking down to the right. So I tilt my head so they'd be in alignment. So I was like this all the time with my head on a real Oh angle. my God, that's so friggin' annoying. Like, like if, if you messed he, up my if, neck if, after people, six months of this, it gets really sore. People can't see it, but it like, it literally, it looked like you were just like, trying to still talk to me yet like look at an airplane that's passing by like, <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's a good so that's annoying. Annoying. I always had to look at you out of the corner of my eyes <laughs> and also but it kind of like if you oh, did that movement annoying. quickly just to see the person like quickly take a glance at them and you're in Cuba and you're on vacation it looks like you're just kind of giving them like a a cool bro right, head what, nod what's like up, what's dude? up yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I know that you, um, uh, like before we get a little bit further into the, the like symptoms and diagnosis and the sort of like journey of, of dealing with MG, um, you, before all this, you, you like, you've worked in the field of disability for, for quite a while, right? Mm. What, what do you do? Like, what, it, what, what do you do for your work and how, and how does, how does the work that you do or did kind of play into all of a sudden being someone who is now having to manage a disability yourself? So I work with people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. And, um, I started doing that like right out of, actually, while I was still in university, I started working in people's homes, just supporting them with their daily life. Um, so a lot of physical care and supporting them out in the community. And then I worked in training our staff for a while, for about a decade. And now I work for the same organization, but trying to connect the organization to other community partners. So I do a lot mm. of um, teaching and training with like faith communities and other community groups on disability and accessibility and ableism and, and things like that, as well as working with a lot of the folks that use our services on advocacy and um, community building within the organization. Okay. And, and uh, can I ask like how, just to kind of throw back to that really interesting letter about, um, about receiving the sacrament, if you have a feeding tube and um, it's just as like, it's just as okay and valuable just to take a little drop of the blood of Christ <laughs> on your tongue or your mouth so that you don't actually have to like munch down uh, a little wafer of, of, uh, of the body. <laughs> So how's that like related to my work? Yeah, sorry, I, pr I probably I, I got on a tangent there and probably just stopped the uh, question mid sentence, but because all I could think about was just you a did, little. Yeah. Um, how well, how does that play into how does that play into the work that you do? Like, how did you know that? How did you know to like send us this like perfect written email with a with also a, a full link that that linked me to like I think it was like the, the like the Canadian archdiocese Catholic yeah. bishop. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, part of my work is looking at the theology of disability. Um, and wow. how, yeah, so I had done some research a while ago on that and just look at different church denominations in Canada and what kind of disability and accessibility um, provisions they've made. And um, the Canadian Conference of Catholic Bishops had one of the best, most comprehensive approaches to um, helping people with disabilities be fully included in the life of the church. So I was just like really impressed with that. So it stuck with me. That's really <laughs> that's neat. awesome. Yeah, that's really cool. Is that again not to like not to go on this tangent for too long, but is the like over the over the past I don't know couple of decades like what what has been the 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 sort of um, like response or 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 like action that's been put into place for inclusion for folks living with disability within 
different faith services? Like, is that something that, that has like had to have been worked on and, and evolve over time? Um, or has there, has there always kind of been some sort of like support system there that, that, you know, it, it's something I've never really thought about, mm-hmm. um, but, it, but I find it quite interesting. Yeah. Um, faith communities have been coming along kind of the disability <laughs> journey, same as, you know, typical society of including people better and, and mm-hmm. seeing people as like, fully valid members of of the community so it's been getting better historically there's been a real emphasis in in churches at least about like um kind of the charity model of like helping those poor people with disabilities and like ministering to them and and that's starting to change where people with disabilities are saying like we don't just want to be ministered to we want to like give back we want to contribute we want to be part part of this like we're more than just pity projects like we want to be full members Mm. and so that's where we see things shifting now is that churches are um just kind of being more inclusive and yeah there's been really great really great strides in that there's still a lot of work to do same as there is in you know the rest of the world but Mm -hmm. um it's been it's been neat to get to be a part of that and get to talk to churches and stuff Mm -hmm. that's really cool yeah it's really it's really interesting because i feel like when you think of the bible and the way that it refers to and includes people with maybe not includes isn't the right word, but, but refers to people with disabilities. It is, it's from that like chair, like charity perspective, like be kind to these people, help them out rather than using language of inclusion. So I, yeah, it's, it's interesting to think of it that way. And obviously um, makes a lot of sense that they're on the same journey as the general public when it comes to um, becoming less ableist. (laughs) Yeah. No, go ahead. What I always point out to churches, though, is it's exactly when we think about the Bible, we think about those stories where it's about people being healed or, you know, like we think about the disabled people that are explicitly talked about in the Bible. But if we look at the whole rest of the scripture, it talks about all people have gifts. All people are should Mm. be included. It's not saying people with disabilities, but all people includes people with disabilities. And Mm -hmm. so that's part of what um, I'm seeing in the church now is just that opening of your imagination to like, it's not only the parts of the Bible that talk about disability, but like all of it applies mm-hmm. to everybody, which includes everybody. So, mm-hmm. oh, that makes me feel so nice. I love that. That's so sweet. Um, <laughs> so, so kind of coming back to uh, uh, you know, you go on this vacation, you're you're walking around, giving everyone on the side eye. Uh, you can tell that like things are not not going uh, quite your way. You, I mean, it sounded like you were kind of you're you were sort of a like an internet sleuth of, of being able to like nail down this this diagnosis without even really getting a diagnosis so what was the what websites do you use because you know like we oftentimes hear that webmd <laughs> yeah. is like stay yeah. away from that so clearly you've been finding good sources <laughs> yeah well, what was the well, no go ahead go ahead got easier once google was invented i, totally. I diagnosed myself with type 1 diabetes in high school but that was pre-google so it was like multiple like, lunch hours reading medical encyclopedias in the school library <laughs> so like google is so great yeah totally so when you when you come back to canada Um, what's the, like, what is that journey? What's the first step that you take in order to like actually nail down some sort of legit diagnosis? And and what did that look like? I went and saw my family doctor and he checked to see if it was possibly a stroke because it was affecting like one side of my face, Mm. um, which is like classic kind of stroke. Um, but it wasn't. So he referred me to a neural ophthalmologist. I went to the hospital and saw, um, that team and they did a bunch of tests basically just made me look up high for a long time and then watched my face droop the more I use a muscle the weaker it gets so they would like just make me use my eye muscle like for long periods of time and then watch it 
fall Ooh. apart. Um, and then they put an ice pack on it and see it bounce back because cold is good for me. And then they'd make me do the same test again and again, watch my eye droop. And so, um, but they also did CT scans and stuff to rule out um, a possible aneurysm and uh, to see if maybe, because sometimes myasthenia is caused by a tumor on your thymus gland. So I had to mm. have a CT to see if I had a tumor, which I did not. So mm. after a couple of days of tests with that team, then I got my my formal diagnosis of myasthenia gravis and they referred me to a neurologist that I saw a month later. And then she did another test just to confirm it where she put, um, I think it's called a sim single fiber test. They put little needles in my face around the affected muscles and then, and in my neck, and then they sent electricity through it and shocked Whoa. my face muscles and then recorded how the muscles responded to the electrical shocks. And then that was kind of the final piece of like saying, yes, this has been like, quantifiably observed you have mm. myasthenia gravis wow. when when uh when <laughs> when they're doing all of those tests and even in the the, the time when, that you were in cuba leading up to that um and knowing like that you had done your your uh your research to identify that it could possibly be mg um was was because you're talking about this like very matter of factly now but were you scared during that time is is it something to be afraid of yeah, I was scared because I read about it, and one of the one of the things I think everybody was with myasthenia gravis fears is a myasthenic crisis, which is when our muscles can just shut down, including our breathing. We can just stop breathing, kind Whoa. of without notice. Like um, it, it you comes on very suddenly and very quickly declines. And I didn't know, how would I know if that was happening? How would I know when to go to the hospital? Like at the beginning, it was only my eye, but I was like, what if it all of a sudden, you know, goes into generalized myasthenia? And I, I just didn't know. So I was, I was quite nervous about that. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of, a lot of fear at the beginning, but as I lived with it and got used to it. And every time I like experience a new symptom and then realize it's not the end of the world and learn how to manage that symptom, it's gotten a lot easier. It's been seven years now. So I feel like I have a pretty good handle on mm -hmm. feeling like what is within the realm of normal because it fluctuates a lot. Um, mm. I think if I started to have a crisis now, I would I would know how to identify it and go get help. But um, at the beginning, I had no idea. So yeah, it was very, it was very Ooh. scary. Well when you get the diagnosis, um, what, what sort of treatments, if any, are available? Like, what does the treatment process look like? Yeah, so they gave me Mestinon at the beginning, which is an anticholinesterase inhibitor. Um, it's a pill that I have to take every two hours. And actually, I'm due for one now. <laughs> <laughs> Literally, right now, just pops it in. Wait, you have those on deck? Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like I, knew, a, I knew I'd be due at 1230, <laughs> so I had to sit here. Oh, I thought you oh, had like how, a like a utility belt, like uh, <laughs> yeah, Batman, Batman belt. Okay. Um, how often do you do you have to take that? Every two hours. Every, yeah. Every two hours. Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Wow. All day, and then I have a long-lasting one that I take before bed. Wow. It's the wow. same, but it's like a slow release one. So that is, it just helps my nerves and my muscles to communicate better because the the problem is my nerves send out the message that my muscles are supposed to move. My nerves work fine, but my muscles, the receptors that collect that message that receive the message they are jammed up with like antibodies so my immune system sends antibodies to my muscles and like jams up those receptors so they don't hear the message that they're supposed to move and contract so they just are weak they don't work and the more i use a muscle the more my immune system thinks oh 
that muscle needs help and it sends more antibodies. And so it just gets worse and gets weaker. And so the more I rest that muscle, then the antibodies are like, oh, our job here is done. They clear out and then my muscle will be Mm. able to get the message and move again. So this drug just tries to help like amplify that message from the nerve so that even if my muscle receptor cells are jammed, the message can still get in so that I can get some more motion. Is like, uh, is the eye, the ocular um, muscle, is that like one of the typical places that would experience that buildup of, of the, that jam or buildup of antibodies because your eye muscles are function like firing so often to, um, move your little eyeballs around. Yeah, that's exactly. It, and, and our eye motions are like so precise. Mm. If they're off just a little bit, we notice it because you have two eyes that have to work in tandem. So mm. like if it's your arms, you might not notice you're a little weaker because there's so many other muscle groups that can compensate. Um, you can, move in a different way but your eyes are so like finely tuned that yeah if if they get off then you notice it so it's Mm. a lot of cases start with the eyes and then over time i think about 80 percent of cases that start with the eyes end up generalizing to the rest of the body wow okay yeah that was one of the questions i had was like where does this typically kind of start so but that makes total Mm -hmm. sense where does it typically go after do you do you know or is it just just go from eyes to bang general right away yeah from eyes to general and, oh, and different people, different ways. Some people notice it first and they're like swallowing. Um, I noticed it mostly in like my, the rest of my face, like my mouth um, muscles and my arms and legs. I started having weakness in and neck, like holding up my head started to hurt. Um, so for me, it took about six months from my eyes. And then about six months later, we'd almost got my eyes under control using the mestinon and steroids and um, IVIG, which is immuno immunoglobulin, uh, intravenous, intravenous mm. immunoglobulin, IVIG. Right. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. so I was, I was going to the hospital once a month to get those infusions, which took two days. Um, and so after about six months, we got my eyes back in line and then it generalized to the, to the rest of my body. Wow. I went back to work. I'd been off work for about six or seven months. I went back to work and then it started to generalize, mm. um, to the rest of me. Well, and what did that feel like? You know, like, was it, um, <clears throat> cause obviously with the eye thing, like you had already, you, you had said already that, um, that's pretty, like they're so finely tuned that it, anything that's off kilter at all, it's like very evident. So when it started to generalize and you were having it like throughout your body, um, because you knew, you were dealing with this, was it a little bit more, you know, evident, a little easier to kind of pinpoint, oh, okay, my arms are feeling a little like off or my legs don't really feel quite strong? Yeah, I could, um, sometimes I just feel weak. Like I, on my bad days, I say it feels like there's extra gravity on me. And it's like, if you're wearing like, you know, ankle weights and wrist weights, just like moving. It's just so much heavier and harder and your body is just lethargic. Um, so sometimes it feels like that, but if you, if you keep going, if you don't rest those muscles, when you're getting that, that lethargy, that weakness, then they'll just stop working. So like I went to brush my hair one day and I like my arm just like fell, like I couldn't, or like my fingers, if I've used my hands a lot, my fingers will just go limp and I can't like grip things. So my muscles will eventually like paralyze temporarily 
um, if I, if I push too far. So it's important for me to like recognize when I'm getting close to that and stop first and, and let it recover mm-hmm. before, um, I go back to trying to keep doing the thing I was yeah. doing. Which is really funny because you, like, I, I don't think this was on the recording, but, um, in your, when, it, when I had asked like your, for like a little bio, the, the first three things it says, I'm a wife, I'm a mom and an obsessive knitter. And when we, when we started the call, you were in the middle of like knitting this really beautiful sweater. <laughs> <laughs> um, how hard is knitting? Like if you, you know, cause I feel like that takes a lot of dexterity, a lot of like muscle hand coordination, muscle work in the hands. The thing with knitting is that it's varied movements and you can knit in all different ways. So mm. it's, it's not the same muscle being stressed in the same way repeatedly. Cause I, I can shift and move. So my hands don't fatigue knitting. A better example of that is like walking. I can walk outside. I can walk for like 5K. I use a walker um, because my back muscles get exhausted. So I use the walker to help hold myself up. But my legs will be good for like walking for 5K outside on like a varied terrain. But you put me in Ikea where the floor is flat and every Uh step is the exact same muscle movements. And I... I'm done. I yeah. definitely need my walker in mm. Ikea or like um, any shopping mall or Costco. Like I'll yeah. use the the motorized carts because mm. like I'm just done because it's the exact same movement. Yeah. I mean, you, I, I can't even walk all the way through Ikea without like collapsing once I get to the, the hot dog stand. Like it, it's I, so I can't even imagine what it's like so, for you. Well, I was going to say, have you, have you been in, in touch with the ministry of silly walks? Um, <laughs> should try that because uh, that would definitely help. That would yeah, probably help solve you. all my problems. Yeah, yeah, that's very, you need to start physio for people with myasthenia gravis and just teach them the silly walks. Varying movements. Oh my lord! Um, <laughs> deep cut, Brian. Very good. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. So when you got the diagnosis and and they were like, all right, yeah, like this is very clear. You have MG and, you know, you go back to work. It becomes generalized. Um, what does, like, what does your healthcare, what do your healthcare providers sort of tell you, you know, like this whole notion of, of MG being frequently life, frequent, frequently life threatening, but rarely fatal. Like how do they, how do they, or do they broach that with you? Like the notion that like, look, this, you know, you probably won't die from this, but you, you, you could, you could die from this. Like, how do they talk to you about that? They didn't. Um, Mm. that was something that I got from the like online support group. Um, I've joined a couple Facebook online support groups and um, the mighty is a great website for Mm. people with chronic illness. Um, And I joined a local support group. So I, I learned that from some of them. Um, The doctors, they didn't, they talked about treatments and they gave me the medications and, you know, got me hooked up with IVIG and stuff like that, but didn't really talk about um, that. They, they did talk about like, if you have a crisis, go to the hospital. I knew which hospital to go to because it has the best neurology um, team on call. Like, I, you know, I had the practical 
skills. Um, but yeah, they didn't really talk a lot about that. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I know that you were, you know, you were, you said you use a walker. Um, do you like, or a, a cane sometimes as well? Is that something else that yeah. you use? Yeah. Um, what other, because this affects so many different parts of your body, I'm sure that there's like other things that you have to do just to kind of get by through your day. Like what, what other, what have, what other parts of the body seem to be most affected for you when things are, you know, when you're having like maybe an off week and what are other types of things that you kind of, that you have to do that like, you know, Brian and I would just never even consider that that's something that we would have to do to like get by. I wear um, big dark sunglasses a lot to help just um, ease the strain on my eye. And um, I drink Gatorade every single day because the electrolytes really help my muscles. I, yeah, I love Gatorade. I love, I love Gatorade. So yeah, it's, yeah, me too. I just, I just <laughs> recently just like re, rediscovered my deep We've been drinking Gatorade like pretty much every day <laughs> Every too. time we go to the gym, we're like Gatorade, Gatorade, Gatorade. Yeah. <laughs> um, I have a neck brace that I'll wear if it's hard to hold my head up. Or I just like wrap a big knitted shawl around my neck at like a neck brace, which because it's a little more fashionable than those, you know, cervical collars. Uh, I have knee braces. I have wrist braces. I have kinesiology tape that I'll get my husband to tape my back to give my spine more support. Mm. Um, I wear an eye patch on the really bad days. So I look like a pirate. I use my cane or my walker depending on where I'm going and and how I'm doing that day. Um, Yeah, just kind of all these different things. Oh, and I have, um, I have, it's called a lung volume recruitment kit. I call it my breathing bag. It's like one of those blue bags you'll see on like um, medical shows where they use them to do CPR on a patient. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it has a mouthpiece that has a one-way valve, so it'll push air into my lungs, but no air can escape back out. And I use it for something called stacked breathing. So I breathe as full as I can. I fill my lungs, and then I put this mouthpiece in, and then I manually pump my lungs up the rest of the way with this breathing bag. And it because as I... As I like sit and my diaphragm gets constricted and my breathing gets shallower and shallower, the ligaments around my lungs can get like tight. And so I need to let, and then I'm not strong enough to like breathe deep and stretch them out. Um, and so I'll use this breathing bag and it just stretches my lungs back out to their full capacity. So then they can like move again. It makes it easier for me to breathe. Whoa, That's cool. so wild. How, um, how often do you do these things and like, where do you do them? Uh, I do them when I, like whenever I need. So my breathing bag, sometimes I'll use it three or four times a day. If it's like a particularly rough time, the summer is really bad for me because heat makes my muscles weaker. So in the summer, I might be using my breathing bag three or four times a day if it's a bad week. Um, But in the winter, like I haven't used it now in maybe a week and a half. So it kind of depends. And I'll anywhere, like now with COVID, I don't whip out my breathing bag and use it (laughs) because it usually makes me cough um, and that'll freak everybody out. But um, yeah, before that, I would just carry it in my bag and I'll like pull it out and in a meeting or I was you know, wondering in a that. conference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People must yeah. see that and go, what is she like, is she, do, do we need to do chest compressions? Like what is, what else does she need? Well, I was going to ask too, like, what is it? Yeah. What is it like doing that in front of a group of people, mm-hmm. especially if they haven't seen you do it before? <clears throat> My thinking is if you're breathing, I have the right to breathe. Yeah. I'll take my insulin anywhere in front of anybody because you're getting insulin. So yeah, I have the right to give mind. myself a needle whenever I need it. Fuck yeah. Um, but if it's people that haven't seen it before, I might like 
I might wait until there's like a break in the conference and do it on the break, but I don't yeah. feel like I need to go to a private room or something. Like I'll just, I'll just do it. And, um, if I'm with somebody, I'll tell them, you know, yeah, um, yeah. I'll say, this is normal for me. You don't have to worry. Like this just helps me breathe. And I, yeah. then I do it. It's Brian, sweet. watch your mouth. Her daughter's listening, dude. I know. Sorry. You keep, my you keep those, you keep those F's tucked in. I will, uh, I will you wash those my, F-words in. I will wash my mouth out with a bar of soap. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> we'll be, we'll be, you, we'll, we'll have a talk about this. Side after. note, side note. Have you ever had your mouth washed out with a bar of soap? Uh, no, my parents weren't that abusive. That's, my, uh, <laughs> that's, my, that's pretty, that's my pretty neighbors, hardcore. uh, <laughs> uh, friends of mine growing up, uh, their their parents physically put a bar of soap in their mouth when they would swear. I wonder, I, I I think how, it resulted I how, in them swearing more. Yeah, I was going to say, I wonder how, like, that, that'll clean your mouth out for sure, but it's not going to clean out the, the dirty words. No, like those, it didn't Because that's a different yeah. kind of dirt. And I don't think, I don't think so. It's not like oil. It's not like, you know, it, oils aren't going to strip that dirt. Out. It is. Uh, Jasmine, <laughs> I wanted to ask, um, do, can you drive a car? Uh, yes, I couldn't when my eyes were real bad, but I can now, but I need to be careful how much, because if I drive too much, then my eye starts to get bad again. Right. So like I drove a lot yesterday. So today I'm, I'm feeling it. I also played a lot of Mario Kart lately, which, you know, (laughs) does it too, but that would do it. Yeah. Some things, some things are worth a little bit of discomfort. (laughs) Is, Is that, um, is there, is there an element of training your muscles or or is it just that the use makes it worse so there's not really a possibility to train it you just have to rest that that's a good question um yeah exercise and myasthenia yeah you i can exercise but i need to be careful that when i feel that like specific fatigue setting in then i stop because mm-hmm. if i keep going then i can like damage those muscle receptors and then it takes a lot longer to mm. recover so um but yeah i i can mm. exercise mm. i I'm not very athletic, so I don't do a yeah. lot, but like I do I, some things. I was wondering, um, I was wondering even with like, you know, driving a car and, and using your ankle to, and foot to, um, constantly press on the gas and brake, um, like, could you do if you, not could you, but if you did stretches on your ankle, just moving it back and forth without any pressure, would that help in the long run with your ankle not, um, getting weak or tired in the same way, or would it just do more damage uh, to the muscle by stressing it? I think the second one, although I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. It, I, that doesn't really bother, again, you because you can press your foot in different ways, right? If you can vary okay. the movement, it's not a problem. Driving a, a manual car, though, with like the, the clutch, that was harder because it's a lot more physical force and it's the same motion every time. Right. So we had to switch to an automatic car. So we switched to an automatic car. We moved to a, a single level home. That's another like one mm-hmm. of those things that we had to change that people might not mm-hmm. think about. Um, yeah. Speaking yeah. of, um, speaking of vehicles with clutches, my, uh, my old 1980s, uh, Volkswagen van, I was imagining when you were talking about MG, it, the perfect analogy for MG is my, the, the horn on my van, <laughs> because if you use the horn too much, it just stops working. And then you have yeah. to like, let it charge back up. You got to pump it up with <laughs> before, a little bag. Before, <laughs> before we'll yeah. start That's working exactly again. Exactly and I was right. like, Hey, yeah. MG's like my van horn. <laughs> yes, it is. Your van has my What, um, uh, so it's been, it's been a number of years now, six years. Have you, have you, um, have you like your list of treatments been pretty much like the same from day one or, or is there like, is there kind of a, a um, 
is there kind of like a, a shopping list of things that you have tried or that you've been recommended from your your healthcare professionals that that you should you know try to implement into your daily life to to help manage MG? Yeah, so I started with Mestinon, like I mentioned, and then they put me on steroids for a while, um, which helped fix my eye. Um, but the side effects of steroids are really crappy. Like then oral, they, like like oral prednisone or something like that. Yeah. Prednisone. Did you get Did you get like moon face from it? Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah I gained that, I gained thirty five pounds and it felt like it was all in my face. So <laughs> wild. It's such a that's such a wild thing. Mm-hmm. Moon face. Sorry, I cut yeah. you off there. Yeah. No, it was weird. So I was on that for maybe about a year. Um, And then um, IVIG, the intravenous immunoglobulin infusions every month. And then um, they they switched me to Imuran, which is a, it's an immunosuppressant. It does the same thing that the prednisone did, but better and with less, less of the same side effects. So, but it can take three to 12 months to kick in. So after I, I went off work again for the second time in December of 2015, um, I was off work for about a year and a half after that. And wow. um, I was just waiting for the Imuran to kick in. And I was pushing to have a thymectomy at the same time because um, some people's myasthenia gravis is caused by a tumor on their thymus gland. And so they remove it right away. I did not have a tumor, so they didn't want to remove mine. But studies have shown that even removing the thymus, um, even if there's not a tumor, can still help. So I really wanted to have that done. So I got that done in, um, I don't know, 2017, so two years after my diagnosis. Um, so I had my, my thymus gland removed. My thymus, is it's right underneath your sternum. And they can either do it like, um, like an open heart surgery type thing where they cut you down the middle and crack your ribs but um, for me they were able to go in through my neck it was called a cervical incision so they did a a horizontal incision at the base of my neck and then they went down in and scooped my my thymus out so I had that done and (sighs) in order to prepare for that surgery because you have to be strong enough to go through that surgery they had me do a bunch of plasma phoresis which is like a plasma Mm -hmm. exchange so it's kind of like dialysis where you've got the tubes in both um, arms and they take your blood out. They separate out your plasma, put in other people's plasma and then put it back in. Mm. So I had to do that for a couple months, um, leading up to the mythymectomy. Um, and then my thymectomy and my Imuran like helped me get back to normal enough that I could go back to work. Um, but I then I was started having, um, side effects from the IVIG. I got aseptic meningitis a couple times. Oh, so no. Yeah, that that, that was the does most, not sound fun. It was the most painful thing that yeah. I've ever gone through. I didn't I didn't like that. So then they switched me to subcutaneous immunoglobulin infusions, which means it's the same stuff I was getting in the hospital once a month, but I do it myself at home uh, twice a week, and it doesn't go into my veins. It just goes into like my fatty tissues under my skin. Why so did I that, that? Why did that happen though? Why? What? How come you ended up with? Sorry, you said it was it was. Aseptic meningitis. Aseptic. How, what, what caused that? Um, you can, like, it's one of the side effects you can get from IVIG. I, I think because when you're getting IVIG, it's like other, so IVIG is other people's blood products. Um, it's just like the antibodies. It's clear liquid, but it's made from blood and they infuse it in. And the idea is that those antibodies are good. And um, so it does two things. It kind of compensates for the fact that my own immune system is suppressed. Like my drugs shut my immune system 
down quite a bit. And so then this gives me antibodies so I don't catch up every cold and flu that's going around. But also these good antibodies are going to hopefully um, counteract what my screwed up antibodies are doing to my muscles. So it makes me stronger. Um, but it's like a, it's thick and I think it's got a lot of protein and it just, you're adding a whole bunch of extra fluid to your body and so it can mess things up and so mm. you can you can get um, migraines Ch- as a side effect but then the aseptic meningitis is one yeah. of those side effects Jared, so for, Jared, for, for people who don't know a- aseptic meningitis is um, is an illness characterized by serious inflammation of the linings of the brain uh, the meninges usually <laughs> with an accompanying mon- uh, mononuclear pleocytosis, we all, which we all know what that means, right? Um, uh, clinical manifestations vary with headache and fever predominating. The, this illness is usually mild and runs its course without treatment. However, some cases can be severe and life-threatening. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, I know that you do really well with the water park analogies. Yes, and so, love them. My favorite. Um, so I'm imagining that, that the uh, bad antibodies that you have Jasmine that are wreaking havoc. They're like riding around the lazy river at the water park <laughs> on their tubes and they're going and everything they're, is and in the lazy river. And, and they're, and they're, and they're, and they're lining up at these specific oh. different parts of the river and causing havoc. They're like, we're just going to hang out here. And, 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 and your body's like no loitering. And they're like, we don't care. And then, so you, you go on this, like these infusions so that you can get rid of those bad <laughs> kick those bad lazy river riders out of the water park and put in some good, very well-behaved, mature tube riders. Some good tuber dudes. That, that'll just ride around and not not sort of loiter at any individual individual ride entrance. Or, we, uh, dude, when this that is, is 100% uh, accurate. It, yeah. That was yeah. so good. <laughs> every, good right? every time he does a lazy river analogy, which is pretty much every third episode, <laughs> whoever, it doesn't matter if it's a physician, if it's someone who's living with illness, they're always like, that's... That's friggin' perfect. That's exactly it. <laughs> it's amazing what you can learn from the we, magic yeah, We got to play just tubing on this uh, after this recording. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I, I'm really curious to know about because um, uh, I, I know you, you mentioned that it wasn't really talked about with your with, like with your healthcare team, but um, just the notion of like um, of your life expectancy with something like this. So again, a disease that like is life threatening, but rarely fatal. Like, does that, when you get diagnosed with, uh, MG or when you look into MG, is there, is there a, um, is there like a, a, a a life expectancy that usually comes with that diagnosis? Um, no, I think I have a normal life expectancy. I have type one diabetes. So I think that shortens my life expectancy a bit that way. So I'm, I don't think, I don't think there's like a, you know, a quantifiable shortened life expectancy, but I do, I feel like Jeremy, you, your Ted talk about knowing your expiry date, right? Mm-hmm. Like you grew up always knowing your expiry date, although now with Trikafta, it's. <sighs> Who knows now? I, I everything, know. everything I thought I knew was flipped upside down. So I, I'll probably live forever now. <laughs> I feel like um, I came into both my illnesses knowing like on like you now with Trikafta, like historically you had an expiry date, mm. but now you're going to live past it. Right. Mm. And I came into both my illnesses knowing the historical expiry date of when I should have died, but there have been treatments so that I, I won't. Right. Ah, so it's, yes. it's not that I am gonna, I'm so worried about like dying sooner. Although, you know, my senior, who knows what happens, but I feel like every day is a bonus 
a bonus day. Like I feel mm. like I should have died already twice over. Once when I was a teenager from diabetes, if insulin wasn't around, I would have. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then again from myasthenia, because if they didn't have all these treatments, um, you know, I've seven years, I don't think I don't yeah. think most people made it seven years past diagnosis. So I feel like every day is just like um bonus time and I'm so lucky to so lucky to be here. So it has changed the way mm. I live. When I was going through it for the first two years and things were steadily getting worse and worse and worse and I was getting ready to go in for my thumbectomy surgery, I was, I was worried about not surviving it because mm. it, was, it was declining so steadily and um, so quickly. And so like when I was going into that surgery, I was legitimately worried that it wouldn't come out. Not because the doctors said that, but just because I knew in my own body that like I was, I was not right. Mm. And so I, I did things before that surgery. Like I used to sing to my daughter. She was three years old at the time, three or four. And I used to sing to her every night before bed. So I recorded myself singing all her bedtime songs on a CD. And I gave it to her before I went to the hospital and said, this is so that like when I'm in the hospital for a few days, I, you can still listen to me singing to you. But Mm. in the back of my head, I was like, and also if I never come home, Mm. you know, and like I, I had a friend set up to call my husband after I'd been in surgery for a couple hours because I knew if I didn't make it, that would be the time the doctors would be telling my husband and I didn't want him to go through that alone. So like I, mm. I was preparing in case, and I think I live that way, just preparing that if, if I were to go at any time, I'm ready. I have no regrets. The people in my life are set up. I have a, a list in my phone of like, if I'm in the hospital, this is what I need. If I die, this is what I want for my funeral. Like I just am, I'm just ready. I'm ready to, I don't want to go. I hope I get to live, you know, to an old age, but I also am just prepared that it, any day I could go, I'm, I'm okay with that. Mm-hmm. I hope, I hope people hear that and feel inspired to kind of adopt a little bit of that mindset, you know, like that, the the notion of being prepared mm-hmm. at any moment to be gone and what you know because I think I think uh, there's many different reasons people are afraid of death and there's many different reasons why we are like a death death phobic society but the like that preparedness and I think just just sort of it gives you the permission to feel a little bit more at ease with the, the idea of dying. And, and I think, I think one of the big fears that a lot of people have is like, it's not the fear of death itself. It's the fear of everybody else. Like what happens to everyone else when I'm gone? What happens yeah. to my daughter when I'm gone? What happens to my parents when I'm gone? What happens to my partner? Mm-hmm. What happens to my friends? Like, ha- like how are they going to feel? And so y- you actually have quite a bit of a, a control and ability to like make that, that transition whenever it may come a lot a hell of a lot easier. And I mean, we've, you know, I've been trying to preach that since day one of the show, but we've heard so many people on the podcast that have like really made that their, their life goal for whatever time that they have left, you know, thinking about Leighton and like what Leighton did for Finn, his son, Mm -hmm. like before he passed, Mm -hmm. like there was just so many things that, that we can do to have some control in a scenario that feels like we don't have any mm-hmm. control, but really it's not, it's not like that. And, mm-hmm. and so it's nice to hear you kind of lay that out there, even though you know, you're not, you know, you're not living with a terminal illness. You don't need to live with one to like, to adopt that mindset. You don't need to have one to, you know, take those, those, those little, you know, minor details, those minor detailed steps to like ensure that everyone is okay. If, if, you know, Mm -hmm. God forbid you get plucked off this planet a little earlier (laughs) than you expected. Jasmine, I'm I'm curious, um, 
like those things that you, you mentioned, even like writing the, the list or notes in your phone. Um, do you also talk to the people in your life about what that will be like when you're gone? Um, I, or do you just give them your phone password <laughs> and go like, look, when I die, it's 5151. That's how you get in and then go to my notes and you'll see a, it's pinned <laughs> to the top there what to do. No, I, I do talk to people. Um, you know, some people are, people don't tend to want to talk about if you, if you die. But they really yeah. don't. <laughs> no, they really don't. But I don't know. I've always found it fascinating. I've always thought it was interesting. If I didn't work in the field with disability, I would have loved to work in the, the death industry. Um, mm. But uh, yeah, I, I do talk to people. Like I've, I've asked a friend of mine if he'll do my funeral if I, if I die and he agreed. And, you know, like I, I have had those conversations. My husband knows where the lists are on my phone. We, <laughs> we'll talk about, we'll talk about things. I'll just pass things out like, oh, you know, when I die, I want this or... Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I think I think the more we can just make death a normal part of life, then mm. the yeah it takes away that fear, like you were talking about, Jeremy. Mm-hmm. Like there, there's so much phobia around death, but um, death isn't this like thing waiting way at the end. Like it's it's a part of every moment that we live. It's the yeah. flip side of mm-hmm. the coin, and we shouldn't ignore it. Yeah, it's what <laughs> makes life beautiful. It's you know. yeah. Speaking of um, um, talking to other people about about not only your own mortality but about MG, um, what I, you mentioned the joining a few support groups uh, online. What role have those support groups played in your uh, treatment and management of of MG? Information I've found like I I haven't needed the support group so much for like the emotional support. Um, that's not where I go for that. But information, learning about new treatments, learning about things like there's a an Ottawa based um, support group that sends out emails all through COVID. It's been like here's where we fall on the vaccine schedule. This is how you can like advocate for treatment for yourself. Like just those really practical things. Talking about new drugs as they come out, or um, at the beginning it was a lot of those practical tips like when you're washing your hair in the shower if your arms are too weak to wash your hair, lean your elbows against the wall and wash your hair like that. And I was like, Mm. that's brilliant. I wouldn't have thought of that, but it makes a big difference. It means I can wash my own hair instead of asking somebody to do it for me. Cause Mm. at the beginning, like I did need help to shower and to wash my hair and like to do all of, all of those things. And so just all those little tips and tricks have been really helpful from the support group communities. I, uh, I, I consent for you to, um, upload a video of the ministry of silly walks into that support group and, uh, you can take full credit for it. I'm not looking for any, but, uh, yeah, yeah. And, and while you're at it, you might as well toss in the, uh, the old lazy river analogy. Let's see, see how that flies. Um, Jasmine, what would you say is the biggest thing that, MG has taken away from you? Um, my reliability. I've never been athletic, but I've been, I've felt strong and capable and like dependable. And I feel like I've lost that. I used to do very physically demanding things at my job and I can't do those anymore. Um, there's some days I need to ask people to get my lunch out of my mic- out of the microwave because I can't physically lift my plate. Mm. Um, so it's hard for me to commit to helping with things because I'm like, I can commit to help with that event, but I don't know on the day of if I'll be able to actually do it. So mm. um, I feel like I have to keep very big margins for myself between what I want to do and what I know I can do because mm. I, I never know. So yeah, I just feel I'm not as reliable. My body's not something I can rely on to do what I need it to do. Mm. What would you say is the biggest thing that it's given you? Um, it's given me a 
a new way to connect with people. Um, I've I've loved connecting with other people in the disability community and the chronic illness community. And like, um, I find it much easier to talk to seniors now, you know, if I meet seniors at a family reunion or something, we can talk about what it's like to transition to using a cane or, mm-hmm. you know, the pain we have in our knees. Like, mm-hmm. um, but with the people that I work with, uh, the people that we serve at my job, um, I've been able to connect with them in a whole new way. Cause for years I was just seen as a staff and I'm still a seen as a staff but they've really um a lot of them have I don't know I think they feel able to relate to me differently because if we go to an event in the community and they show up in their wheelchair and I show up with my walker they love that I have wheels Mm. and they feel like this this sense of like I don't know I feel like they welcome me a little bit as one of their own as opposed to just a staff like Mm -hmm. I am I'm still a staff and it's a different relationship because they know I'm paid to be there with them, but they also know that I get it. Some of the accessibility issues and the, the stigma and the frustrations. Um, yeah. So I've, I just, I've been able to connect with the people that I serve at work in a whole new way. And it's been wonderful to get to be part of them and they're welcoming. And yeah, the disability community has just been such a, such a wonderful, wonderful group to get to be part of in a whole new way. Mm, and That's they're awesome. they're very lucky to have you be a part of it, uh, Jasmine. This has been such a delight to uh, to talk to you and to uh, give us a little bit of insight into what it's like to live with myasthenia gravis. Um, uh, it's it's been a delight. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I love your show, and I'm so glad to be here. <laughs> <laughs> Keep Thanks. applying, folks. Keep applying. <laughs> Well, there you go, folks. Hope you enjoyed that conversation. As always, we are coming at you Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And if you are a fan of the podcast and you want to support the podcast, there's a number of ways you can do that. First of all, you can leave a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. We love reading them. You can simply rate the podcast on the Spotify mobile app, if that's where you're listening. Or if you want to join the conversation, hop on over to our Discord. The link is in the show notes of this episode. And uh, we have a lovely little community over there of sickos and non-sickos all hanging out, chatting. And uh, hey, you could even help produce the podcast over there if you want. You can, again, find that link in the show notes below. Sick Boy Podcast is produced and co-hosted by myself, Jeremy Saunders, Taylor McGilvery, and Brian Stever. The show is managed by Jeffrey Lonis over at Talent Bureau. The sound design of this episode is brought to you by Donovan the CPAP Morgan. And, of course, the theme music is from the band Take Part. That is it for this week. I'm Jeremy, and this is Sick Boy. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.